right, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be together. Yeah, we always got to say that, don't we? What if the preacher got him said, you know what? It ain't good to be together this Sunday. You know you're in trouble, right? That's not where I'm at today, just so you know. And I also wanted to just recognize, I, you know, I want to recognize, I want to say, hey, welcome to everybody who's online, too, because I know there is a large number online. Even if you're not online right now, you'll hear it in the next day or two. So I just want to acknowledge you and let you know that I see you, and I know you're there. All right? So um, we are going to finish up our exodus in a couple of weeks here. So I've got the golden calf. So, um, oh, I guess i got to do this. Oh, it's already up. They're, they're looking out for me. Um, so, you know, we just kind of finished up a little bit, like Jason did, The basically briefly mentioned the Ten Commandments and the, the other 40-some-odd laws that were given to Moses on the mountain. And Moses and God are up on the mountain for, um, for a long period of time. And this is when the golden calf story kind of takes place. But, you know, when you go through a book like this, there's just so much to cover. You just got to pick a little bit. So, and I, I know we say that. So I'm going to just pick some specific sections out today um, as we go through it, as we go through the golden calf story. So the name of my lesson today is Broken and Restored. And I need to pray. This isn't really for you. This is for me. But you can join me if you want. All right, God, thank you so much for this day. I pray. God, help me. Help me to speak faithfully of your words. I know I'm not going to do it a perfect job, God, but please help me to be faithful with your words. Help me to be able to be concise and to make sense in the ways that you want, God, that our hearts would receive a message and some little bit or something today that helps us as we continue to strive to be faithful people. God, we know this world is a battleground. And uh, I know I am extremely feeling it today. And God, I just especially lift my children up to you this day. But God, and I, I pray for all the parents as they raise their children and love and adore them as they go through this life. But be with us as we get into your word today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the, the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments and the 42 or 46 laws that God gives. And there's a lot more that come after that. Um, I'm not sure um, how the word law is viewed by us. I don't think it's viewed by us the same way it's viewed by the Jews. Um, back then or now, even, really. You know, I, I think, Jason, I think a couple of midweeks ago we did Psalm 19, which was a wonderful little midweek for me. Just how the whole earth is worshiping. If you just stop to notice, it's all worshiping God and we are invited to join in. And that was really good for me. I've been driving down the road and thinking about what's wrong, what I need to fix, and who I'm mad at. And then I go, wait a minute, the mountains are worshiping over there. I think I'm going to stop for a minute and join them. And that was really good for me. But, but in that midweek, I think we discussed how the, when the word law for the Jews, you know, that was like, for them it had, it had all the, the connotations of like um, blessing, gift, treasure. It's a good thing. They're like... And they're like, oh, God's law is so good. And yet, I know for us sometimes we don't really look at it always that way. We kind of get a more of a, <clears throat> we, I, I don't know about you, but we can think about, okay, I'm not allowed. There's a law, it means I'm not allowed, right? Or um, there's a restriction. 
Or there's a law, which means if I break it, there's an enforcement or a punishment coming. And so there's that positive blessing treasure and that negative kind of look at it that, you know, maybe my Western mind more looks at it. And, and so we can look at the Ten Commandments kind of as the Ten Laws, the Ten Rules that you better not break. And, you know, we get into the Golden Calf story, and I'm just going to act like you guys are super familiar with this story. And, and we can see them breaking the... Breaking the law. I can't. I got Judas Priest in my head. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. Okay. Sorry, I had to let loose a little bit there. Really, when you think about the Ten Commandments and you think about the law of God, it's really about the relationship. It's basically God saying, here's the things I want to define our relationship. That's what God is basically saying. As opposed to, here's the things that if you do that, you're going to get busted by me. And so it's a different way of looking at it. It's all about the relationship and covenant between God and his people. In fact, many have noticed there are some really heavy wedding parallels in the Sinai experience. I'm sure that the Jewish weddings probably came after the Sinai experience, were patterned after that. But, you know, the, the shofar, which is the sounding of the trumpet, that's something that sounded at a Jewish wedding when the, gro- when the groom arrives. You know, the, the, the hoopah, which is the... The, the, the tent that they meant under that signified God's presence, which would re, be represented by the cloud on the mountain, right? Um, what a, oh, the ketubah. The ketubah would be like the, the groom would bring this, this kind of a, maybe, I don't know if it was a document or what, but it was like, this is what I want you to know that I want our marriage to be about. That'd be almost like vows in our day-to-day. So if you look at, at, the, at the Exodus, at the, at the Sinai experience with the Jews, it's kind of a wedding, you guys. It's a covenant between God and his people. And even that whole language of you will be my treasured possession, that, that's a groom talking to his bride. This is not just rules to be religiously right. This is life together in a relationship. And that's what God is going for. And they are the bride. And that's what makes this whole golden calf story really difficult. It's almost like cheating on your wedding day. Maybe something along those lines. So um, let's get into the scriptures here. Let's go to Exodus 32. We're going to try to cover... No, I don't feel like I'm going to try to cover too much. All right, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take your, off your gold earrings that your wives, sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. I was wondering, you think those are the earrings they got off the Egyptians when they rolled out? Maybe some of it? I don't know. I was just thinking about that. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fastening it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and get up and got up and indulged in revelry. Okay, there's, there's an ugly scene going on here. It's really interesting to me. It's like, you know, the bull, the, the calf imagery, this is not a, a, a new image, right? That would have been... An image, a very common God image in their time, right? So they were going back to an old image of God. But 
Aaron fashions a calf, and then they said, these are your gods. And then Aaron goes, now we're going to have a festival to a Lord. And then they go, we're going to have, then they get up and indulge in pagan revelry. It's, it's really kind of all over the place, isn't it? It doesn't seem like super consistent to me. What's really interesting is that um, some of the versions, you don't really notice, you know, and it, it says when the people saw that Moses was so long coming down, some of the versions say Moses was shamefully long. And if you get in your blue letter Bible and you look up this, this Hebrew word for this long, so long, it's kind of the, got the connotations of embarrassingly long. So I was thinking like you went to meet your friend at the restaurant and they were supposed to meet you at 7 and 8 o'clock. They're still not there and everybody's looking at you and you're like, you know, it's kind of maybe a little bit like that, kind of embarrassingly long. It was a long time for them to be waiting. Moses was gone and, it, and in that time, you know, it's one thing if things happen really, really quick, right? You could be like, Darren, get to the point, right? Our attention spans aren't super long. But it's really interesting in your spiritual life when you have these long periods of nothing happening. And what are you supposed to do? I think it's really interesting. During this long absence of Moses, I feel like their anxiety and their fear start to settle in. Right? And what do they do? They take matters into their own hands. Right? I mean, that's what I see the golden calf as. They're like, all right. This isn't going good. Moses is gone. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. Maybe they were saying, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're in a place we've never been before. We're on a journey we don't really comprehend. We're not even sure what's happening. Um, and, and this sitting tight while we wait is killing us. Have you ever had that where you feel like you've got to just make it happen in your life? You just can't sit because... This, the pause and the time that you're waiting is painful. Or the pause of the time that you're waiting is, is uncertain. Or there's an anxiety while you wait for something that's difficult in your life to change. And I, I just, I just kind of see that everyone in this. One of my main points today, and this is kind of my whole backdrop, this is what I'm thinking. You know, imagine there's a movie about your life, you're the star of the show, Right? We all got stories. In this room right now and online, there's a hundred and something stories sitting in this room. Every one of us is living a life where we're the center of what happens in that life. And, and you know, it's our life, right? And I think, honestly, we're a church to the extent we know each other's stories, right? I mean, that's what family does. They know each other's stories. But if you're the center of the story, then it's up to you to make sure your story goes down the way it needs to go. As opposed to what God had invited Israel into. That God now was the center of their story. Right? God is the center of the story, and they're a very important part of that story. It's one thing if God's the center of your story and you don't really matter, and he's just using you to some means to an end. But no, you are, your story is not really yours. It's God's. That's the, the choice we made. That's the choice that the Israelites, that's what they're entering into. And I'm not surprised they don't understand that. So when God's there and there's fire and there's mountain and there's, there's clouds and there's things happening, yeah, it's all about God. God and Moses leave and guess who it becomes all about again? It goes, they go right back to being the center of their own story. And they go right into taking matters into their own hands. 
You know, the golden calf is what happens when we anxiously don't sense or seize God's presence. So we take control and choose a different direction than the one God might have us waiting for. All right. You know, we can take control of our lives as opposed to trusting in God's love and provision and waiting on him to work in our lives. Do you believe that God's going to leave you hanging? Or do you believe, even though these pauses in our lives are shamefully long sometimes, that God's going to show up? You know, I, I bet you in this room right now, there's a lot of shameful pauses in our lives right now. And there's also a lot of them that eventually God made happen. We need to tell each other about those. We need to hear, I need to hear when my friend has trusted God for a number of years and patiently and then something happened. I'm, I'm in a shamefully long pause right now in my family. And I need to know that you went through that too. And you didn't lose your mind. Or you did a little bit, but you came back. Maybe you had your own little golden calf moment. Right? Hopefully you didn't have to drink the ground up gold that we're going to read about. But whatever God does. And we need to know about those stories in each other's lives. That's, that's, that's family. That's what, that's what we need. Because I need that so I can keep holding on. Because I need to keep watching and waiting for what God is going to do in my life and in this world. Right? I feel like as a church we're in a shamefully long pause right now, to be honest. And you know what? It's very human nature to take matters into your own hands and set off on a course of what you think you need to do. You know, um, I want to do a little thought experiment here. So we know that we're going to read a little bit. God threatens to wipe them all out and start over with Moses, right? What if, what if God just cut and ran on the Israelites right there? So you've got all these people out in the desert. They golden capped him. They cheated on the wedding day. I mean, that's kind of how I look at it a little bit, right? Obviously, they didn't understand what they were getting into here a little bit, but they cheated on the wedding day. What if God just said, all right, I'm done. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm just going to leave you to your own devices. What happens if you get a group of people and each person is the center of their own story in that group? There's not a bigger story tying them all together. There's not a bigger figure in their lives in which they all submit to. But it's all about them, each one of them. Because that's kind of what you got in the golden calf, right? They all just kind of pulled together. But I just wanted, I was just thinking, if you left these Israelites, and, and there's no scripture, this is just Darren dreaming here, thinking a little bit. What happens if you get a large group of people and each person is acting out of their own self-interest and that's it? That becomes a very dysfunctional group of people. Right? I think that's how empire gets built. People start using one another for their own ends, oppressing one another. Other people are only there for what they can do to help me further my own interest. That was what God took them out of. That's, you know, if, if, if they were left alone, they just go back and become Egypt again. They become those people that do the same thing God rescued them from. You know, God being center of our lives and being first in our lives, that's a gift. It saves us from ourselves. Because I think the golden calf's a really good kind of picture of what happens 
when it's all about us. So it's just something to think about as we read that, you know. Um, I, I wanted to say that, you know, there's a community here of people. Every community has to have some obligation and responsibility to one another in order to survive. You can't have a family where people don't care about each other because it ain't much of a family. It can be a family in name but not in function. You can't have a spiritual community without some responsibility to one another. If you feel responsibility for each other in this church, that's a good thing. We need that. Now, we do have a little history where that might, people might use that responsibility and that obligation in a heavy-handed way, and that is toxic and unhealthy. But we can't go the other way where we're a church without any loyalty to each other, without any responsibility for how each other are doing, without any obligation to make sure this place functions and goes forward and we wait patiently together. You can't have a really great spiritual family without some obligation. And that's going to look different for everybody. I understand. I woke up this morning with a pit in my stomach. I don't really struggle with anxiety, but I've been fighting it all day today. I super respect people that have anxiety in being in the group and having a hard time giving to it. I, I can respect that. That's honest. Somehow you've got to find a way to fight through that in your way. I mean, getting old, not being able to travel, not being able to serve in the same way anymore, going through a really deep, dark time in your life, those are all part of the human experience, and they're fair. But in all of that, we've got to stick together somehow as a body of believers. You know, we live, and it's kind of a weird statement. I, I know I've been reading and listening to some similar things as others have been, but we live in what's called the age in authenticity. The age in authenticity is basically says that you need to be true to yourself all the time. You need to be true to your feelings. You need to be true to your identity. You need to be true to your experiences because those matter more than anything else. I'm not going to say that's a terrible thing. You don't want to not be true to yourself. Because then you can be manipulated and pushed around. You need to be honest about how you feel and what you want, what you think, and how you see yourself. That is all really, really good. But we cannot, our culture right now, the highest and most important good is you doing what is best for you, what feels right to you, and what your experience dictates. I don't know, I don't think I can do my relationship with God that way. And I don't know that any of us really can for very long. We've got to subordinate some of our emotion and some of our experiences to the Lord of the universe. And I know that, you know, I, I know, you know, this is so, we all come to church, and I'm not sitting in here like I'm the perfect guy, but we are still a church where we don't mind somebody laying it down every once in a while, Right? If we get to a spot where we don't, we're really concerned about being offended all the time and no one can ever say anything, and I kind of went there a little bit. I was like, I was so, I've offended so many people in my life. I'm so scared of offending anybody that I'm just not going to say anything. I don't think that's a really good plan. I mean, I can't do that with my kid. Never get in their face. I probably get in my kid's face too much. 
right? Because you're, you're afraid. But there's a balance there between confrontation and respect, saying too much, not saying enough. You know, we need some fight for the family of believers. We need to fight for it. I mean, I know there are some incredibly loyal people in this church. We need some grit and a desire to make this thing keep going while we wait patiently for God. Now, that doesn't mean take matter into our own hands. That's starting to sound like I'm starting to take matters into my own hand. I need to be careful there. It does, huh? You know, I don't, I don't want to do that. All right, let's keep reading. Exodus, uh, let's go to verse 7. I'm going to ask, I'm going to do a Jason right here. You guys following me? All right. I just want to make sure you're following me. Because sometimes my brain connects the dots and everybody else is like, huh? All right. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. What made them corrupt? They were the center of their story. They left from God being the center, and they took that role. They left from following the ways of God and waiting on God and trusting God and obeying God, and they went to, we've got to make it happen. We've got to do it. We've got to figure this out. We've got to get control of this situation. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, that I will make you into a great nation. You know that, that stiff-necked part there is, we always think it's super bad in the Bible, and I think it is kind of bad. It means you're stubborn. But you know, there's kind of a good stubbornness too, right? I'm a little stiff-necked. I wouldn't probably still be a Christian if I wasn't stubborn. Even though, because I don't quit when it hurts. I shouldn't say that like, like that's like I'm always great about not quitting when it hurts. I think about quitting about a thousand times, but I don't. Because I'm too stubborn. I'm too stupid sometimes. But, you know, that's kind of a good thing, isn't it? I'm not giving up on my kid. I'm not going to give up on my relationship with God. I'm not going to give up on my body of believers. I do feel like it sometimes, and I probably run people off sometimes, but generally speaking, being stiff-necked in that way is good. But when I'm bound and determined to go my own way instead of waiting on the Lord, that's the bad stiff-necked. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your first anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, with whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster they had threatened. You know, Moses has got some stiff-neckedness too. The Jewish word is chutzpah. He's got some chutzpah. You know what that is? That's like, I'm a little bold here, right? He's like, no, God, you said... Remember your promise. Remember what you said you were going to do to your people. That's pretty gutsy, isn't it? 
You know, that's all over Scripture. People reminding God of His promises. You know, know, the Jews were really good at going, those promises are for me, and I'm going to remind you, God. I can be more like, those promises are for me, but I've blown it too much, so I don't have a right to remind you, God. No. That's not a good way to think, is it? That's me being the center of the story, right? Because if I'm the center of the story, my sin's bigger than God's grace. But if God's the center of the story, no. No, no, no. You, you, those promises are yours, Darren. They're yours. You can claim, you can remind God of them. And I, I probably need to do, we probably all need to do this a little bit more in areas of our lives. He's got some chutzpah, that's for sure. You know, they became corrupt because they stopped trusting the story that God is good and near and wants to work, love us and work with us in putting this world back together. And the opposite of that is reverting to anxiety and striving. God is obviously anger here. I don't, I'm not going to try to explain away God's anger. I don't know what to do with it. All I know is how many times has this whole enterprise of God been hanging by a thread, and yet every time it still comes through. I mean, it's all over the Bible. I mean, Abraham's like this with a knife over Isaac. I mean, the whole thing's over, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross. Everybody's lost their mind except for the guy on the cross. And yet somehow, and there's a, there's a hundred examples of this in the scriptures, where this thing looks like the wheels are going to come off the bus, and it doesn't. Right? So God's mad. I don't know. I, I don't really know how to process it. I'm not going to try to explain it to you. He looks pretty ticked to me. And Moses gets right in there. And bargains and reminds God, you know, this is the guy that is the the antithesis of the rest of the Israelites. They're all about them. Moses is gone. God's gone. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? We're afraid. We've got to come up with a plan, figure it all out. Moses, God says, I'll wipe them out and restart with you. And Moses is like, okay, yeah, that'll be good. It'll be all about me. Nope, that's not what he does, does it? He's a really good example of somebody who it's not about him. It's about the people. It's about God. It's about this bigger plan of what God's doing in this world, and Moses sees it. And, you know, frankly, these people haven't really been very nice to him. I don't recall a whole lot of, like, warm and fuzzies between the Israelites and Moses. I mean, there's some, but more or less... You know, if he wanted to have an attitude with them, he's got plenty of grounds in a kind of a worldly kind of way. Moses shines. His love for the community and for the people is greater than his own self. He's a sacrificial man. He's devoted. He's loyal. He's a little stiff-necked. He's got something down deep inside of him that is willing to fight for these people. Even though... They're messing up bad. And I love that about him. You know, um, we all need a little fightness. So I'm just going to move, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of scripture here. Moses throws the tablets on the ground when he gets down, right? God tells him to go down. They go, Joseph go, or Joshua goes, I hear dancing, and God, or I hear fighting, and, and Moses says, no, it's dancing. But you know, those, those tablets, they're kind of like the covenant contract I mean, they're just, they're tablets, but you know what I'm saying? So when Moses throws them down, he's breaking the covenant. 
I mean, they've broken the covenant with the golden calf, right? So there's kind of a, a double breaking there that goes on with there. Aaron gives his lame excuses, which we love to pick on Aaron because there are some pretty lame excuses in there. Out came this calf, just popped out. I don't know what to do with that. And then Moses says, you let the people let loose. Like, you're, we're a laughing stock to everybody because we're, everybody's out of control. There, there's something there about keeping the sheep a little bit going in the right direction, right? Not everybody willy-nilly doing whatever. I don't know what that looks like. Then Moses has the, uh, is it the Levites. They strap on their swords and they kill 3,000 people in that group. That's tough. It's in Scripture. I'm not going to deny it's not in there. I've got to think it's probably the, the thought leaders. It's the, it's the people that were probably more influential. And then God promises a plague after that as punishment after Moses makes them drink the water. And, you know, they grind up the calf and put it in the water. It's really interesting in Numbers. There's a very similar law for the test of an adulterous woman. They make her drink something and... Yeah, it's, it's, it shows up in other places in the Bible. And I, I always like when I see things in more than one place. And then Moses asks God to forgive them or blot him out, right? He makes that famous line. If you're not going to forgive them, if you're not going to go with us, then blot me out, God. I'm done. So let's pick up in 3312. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know with whom you will send me. Not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, remember, this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Some think that's the center of a chiasm in here. I'm not going to get hung up on that. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do everything you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. Um, This is a relationship reset. We We don't want to do this whole section of scripture where the covenant is broken without talking about the bigger, really the bigger part of this. The covenant is restored. God's going to restore it. It's almost like the bride cheats on the wedding day and the groom goes through with it anyway. I mean, that, it's pretty amazing when you think about it that way. But this is also a reset between Moses and God, I think, in their relationship a little bit. And, and, and there, there gets to be all this discussion about presence, presence, presence. If I don't sense your presence, if I don't have your presence, I'm not going. If you're not going with us, we're not going. It's really interesting to me because what caused the Israelites to get all tweaky in the first place Not to, like, oversimplify it, but what didn't they sense? God's presence. Moses' presence. And Moses is like, we need your presence or else something bad's going to happen again. I wish I could tell you that you will sense the presence of your Lord every moment of every day in your life. I do think, like our little midweek a couple weeks ago where you just 
stop enough to notice that the whole world is rejoicing and worshiping God helps us enter into that presence a little bit. But really, life is, there's a lot of long pauses in there, isn't there? You know, I was listening to Doug Jacoby just had a sermon the other day, and he was talking about the book Acts is 30 years. You know, you read the book Acts and you think, okay, stuff is happening, man. People are getting baptized. People are getting let out of prison. Things are happening, healing, converting. It's just like hop, hop, hop. Our church should be like that. Hop, 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 hop. Stuff should be happening every day. That's 30 years of a church highlight reel in a million different places. That's not normal life. Normal life is a lot of patient trust. A lot of waiting. God shows up. I don't want this to sound like I don't think God shows up on a regular basis. I think he probably shows up more if you have the posture for it. I think sometimes I probably stop God from showing up by taking too many matters in my own hand. I, I am a golden calf dude. Like, I will make it happen if it ain't happening good enough. And this is a really good lesson for me to remember that. God's presence is really important in this discussion. If you have found favor, please... Go with us. Um, I don't know. How much trouble do we get in because we don't sense God's presence? And how good is it when we do? I'm going to circle right back again. This is why it's so important that we hear from each other as we dwell together about the way God works in our lives. Don't check in. Check out. Talk to each other probably see a lot more God's fingers in your life as we do that. Okay, uh, one more verse. 34. I'll get to communion. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write in them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks or herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped the Lord. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is God's response. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome that work that I, the Lord, will do for you. I'm just going to break it right there. I really want us to just kind of get to this description of God. Verse 6. The Lord, the Lord. You know, the little L, the little L. Yahweh, Yahweh. I am, I am. God is... He gives his name, but now he's telling you what his attributes are, right? I am, I am compassionate. I am, I am gracious God. I am, I am 
the slow to anger God. I am, I am the God that abounds in love and faithfulness. I am, I am the God that maintains love to thousands. I am, I am the God that forgives wickedness, sin, and rebellion. Thank goodness. Yet I am, I am the God that does not leave the guilty unpunished. I am the God. My love to a thousand, my punishment to three or four. I always love that little formula. It's a thousand to three or four. Like God's love is a thousand to three or four. Not that punishment, I don't even know, I fully understand what that actually means because I'm pretty sure I've been punished as a Christian. (laughs) I'm pretty sure my kids have been punished without me not being my kids anymore. But this is who God is. I think we got to, and you know, if you see Jesus, that's what you see. Do you see Jesus right there? Jesus, Jesus, compassionate and gracious. Jesus, Jesus, slow to anger. Jesus, abounding. Jesus, in love. Jesus, maintaining his love to a thousand generations. You know, this uh, gets repeated several places. I'm going to have a communion prayer out of Psalm 103. And it's, it's a very similar, it is this verse. All right, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. And this is going to be our prayer for the Lord's Supper. We're going to start in verse 8. God, you are compassionate. God, you are gracious. God, I'm so grateful you're slow to anger. Thank you for your abounding love in my life, God. God, I'm grateful you will not always accuse. God, I'm so thankful you will not harbor your anger forever. Thank you, Lord, that you do not treat me as my sins deserve or repay me. Thank you, Lord, according to my iniquities. God, I'm grateful, as I see in Jesus, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, in Jesus, so great is your love for those fear you. God, I am so grateful for the blood that was poured out so that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgression from me. God, I'm so grateful. Help me to understand, help all of us understand that as a father has compassion on his children, you have compassion on us, those who fear you. God, I'm grateful that you know how I was formed and you know that I'm dust. Thank you for this bread that represents, reminds of how much love you have for us that you were willing to be broken. Thank you so much for this juice that helps our hearts to feel the blood that cleanses our soul. Thank you so much for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.